On episode 57 of Mosin at Large, we'll talk about email lists, who still uses them, and why do they become so fractious. Braille magazines that you used to read as a child, and do you still use a Braille wristwatch? And there's plenty of discussion about Apple and their latest developments. Mosin at Large you're very welcome to contribute to the podcast, and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email, or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and that you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736, and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners, to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast. And I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full Mosin at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long, and to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, it's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. It's wonderful to be here. It's certainly a thrill. Yeah, good to be back again with you. Hope you've had a good week. And I have a couple of housekeeping matters to begin with. You know how you go to conferences and everybody's sitting there and someone comes on and says, we have a few housekeeping matters first. I don't know if that's a New Zealand thing or a worldwide thing. Anyway, hopefully you are on the media list for the Mosin at Large podcast and other little media endeavors of mine. You can subscribe if you're not on it by sending a blank email message to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. Via that email list and the blog and various other things, I send a message out to say that we would be doing a detailed look at the low-carb lifestyle, because I've had a lot of requests about this, and I had one particular request which was quite moving to me, and I wanted to devote the time that this deserves. What we have is a really comprehensive look at low-carb. I'm going to give you my low-carb testimony, and I'm also going to talk about what you eat on a low-carb diet, how you get there, various books and other resources, websites, that kind of thing, and also talk to a couple of people who have different perspectives on going low carb and what it has meant to them. And you, my Mosin at Large listeners, have been prolific this week. Prolific. So I'm going to do the extra thing. And I also note that the whole low carb thing may be something that doesn't interest all our listeners. 
So I have done my homework, Teach. In fact, I've spent a very long time just making sure I have my facts correct and giving you all the resources. And we will be putting out an extra edition of the Mosin at Large in the podcast feed. And that will come out at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. Time, on Wednesday, the 26th of August. So look for it in the podcast feed. The next episode of Mosin at Large after this one will be totally devoted to low-carb matters, and it will be probably a little over an hour long. So there's a lot of detail there. The Mosin at Large low-carb special. If I ran it on this episode, we would have lots of listener contributions that we wouldn't be able to get to. So apologies for the couple of days delay. I hope that you will find it worth it because I've put a lot of work into it and answered the questions that I've been asked over the years. Hey, Jonathan, it's Debbie Armstrong, and I would like to discuss blindness mailing list on this podcast. Here's the thing. I love subscribing to blindness lists, especially interesting ones where people talk about software or hobbies, and the information content always seems to be high when I subscribe. I try to always make at least two posts that are thoughtful and full of information before I ask a question. And with every subsequent question I ask on one of these mailing lists, I try to balance it with two posts that answer other people's questions or provide valuable information for the community. But I see that many other people don't seem to share the same ethos. So instead, many of the comments on the list will be things like, hey, Jonathan, I have the same problem, or hey, Judy, I got those headphones last week, or hey, it's so good to see you on this list. How are you doing? Pretty soon the list, which is supposed to be about a hobby or software or some other blindness issue, has devolved into a lot of mindless chit-chat, and it takes forever to read. And when a list is 90% chit-chat and 10% information, I then find myself unsubscribing, and I'm probably missing out on the 10% information. What can we do about this situation? How can we prevent people from chit-chatting on these lists? I've tried lots of things. I've created rules in Outlook. Used to be when I used Eudora, I created filters. I make sure the list goes into its own folder. I've tried reading the list in digest mode, but it doesn't seem to save me any time. It takes just as long to read individual messages. I've tried reading messages on the web. And with Groups.io, that sort of works. But there's no solution that seems to strip the wheat from the chaff. And it takes a long time to get through all the mailing lists. I have so many eclectic interests, knitting, cooking, gardening, blindness issues, all sorts of tech things, iOS, Windows. I'd love to read all those lists, but I just don't have time in the day to do it. What are your thoughts? Are other people enjoying the mailing list as a social networking outlet? Or are they as frustrated as I am? And what are they doing to minimize the amount of time they spend reading their email? I am only on one email list now, Debbie, that's kind of a discussion list. And that gets out of hand every so often. But it's reasonably well disciplined most of the time. Other than that, I've just got off them for many of the reasons that you mention. I've also started many of these email lists over the years. 
I go back all the way to the bulletin board days and the FidoNet Echoes, eventually went on to various email lists, and I've seen services come and go and methodologies come and go. In terms of strategies, grouping by conversational thread definitely helps, and I really like getting through email lists on my iPhone because of the really efficient way it loads an entire thread, and you can just flick from one message to another, which does make skimming the most efficient experience I have ever seen on any email client. Outlook also, of course, will group by conversation, but it's not quite as efficient as reading your mail on iOS. But let's speak plainly. The fundamental problem with email lists is that people are selfish and people lack discipline and people take the bait. You're right. It is so amazing when somebody comes on a list and all of a sudden somebody says, oh, did I go to school with you? How are you? And, And suddenly it's just descended completely off topic. Then, of course, you get my absolute and utter bugbear, which is when somebody says, I know this is off topic, but I've got nowhere else to go. Or they put off topic in the subject line as if putting off topic in the subject line makes it okay. What it actually says is I'm so selfish that I think my needs are more important than the purpose for which this list, this group was set up. It's obnoxious and it spoils the list and then sometimes the moderator will have to put the list on moderated status for a while to get people under control again and get the signal to noise ratio right and then people accuse the moderator of being a dictator and a censor and send personally abusive emails and on and on it goes and I really don't think it's worth the drama anymore. My most recent experience of moderating a public discussion list was when I was foolish enough a short time ago, a few years ago, to realize that there was a gap in the blindness market because we have iOS lists and we have Android lists, but there wasn't a list where you could just think about which phone is right for me. So I set it up and then, of course, inevitably, it became a very polarized bitter at times discussion about iOS versus Android as if you'd gone out and criticized someone's mother or something and it really just got ridiculous and I didn't have the time to moderate it anymore. I have passed on quite a few of the lists that I started back in the 90s and the early part of the century to other people and they are still running so I guess that's nice that those who want to use the lists still can participate in them. But the rule of thumb that I tried to encourage people to think about when I was moderating email lists was simple. Is this message going to be of value to the hundreds, sometimes thousands of people who are on this list? If you're sending a personal message via the list to someone, obviously you're inconveniencing a lot of people by doing that. And it is fundamentally selfish. Now, There will be people listening to this, I know, because I've had this conversation on many, 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 many email lists, who'll be saying, chill, dude, it's only an email list. Who cares if there's the occasional off-topic message? But the problem with it is exactly what Debbie is illustrating. Busy people who have answers do not have the time to sift through the chit-chat and the nonsense. Busy people with knowledge, are just going to unsubscribe and say, this is not worth my time. There's not an information exchange here about the subject matter that is interesting enough and disciplined enough for me to stick around. 
And that reduces the list quality because there are fewer knowledgeable people and so the thing just deteriorates. It's a weird kind of spiral. Now, there are list moderators who are control freaks and I won't go into specifics here, but there are (laughs) and they really get a power trip out of moderating an email list, which is kind of sad, but that exists as well. So no, I've kind of decided that for me anyway, they've passed their use by date. I would so love to get a group of really knowledgeable people together who know how to behave themselves, who are happy to have an intelligent, respectful debate so they can disagree with each other, but in a way that doesn't attack the person, but challenges the ideas. I would love to be on a list like that. But unless I were to self-select the people on the list, I'm not sure that it's possible. A handy tip from the highly controversial John in Australia says my tactic to overcome noisy email lists is to create an email address which is only used for email lists. Instead, I have a personal email list which is used for important recipients such as friends and family, another account for advertisers which I might be interested in, and the third for the above-mentioned lists. Not all email listers post their messages on social media. Thus, I am unable to leave the list without missing out. FOMO, eh? Fear of missing out. John also continues, Winter is coming to an end in Australia, but I enjoyed the delicious soups, which I got to keep me warm during winter months. I told you he was controversial. And in the UK, Brian Gaff says, I still use mailing lists via email, i.e. I do not go to a bunch of forums or lists seen as forums because most forum systems never use the same interfaces. Mailing lists can be downloaded offline, read, and all that stuff. No clutter. I often have arguments with so-called moderators of mailing lists who try to control the users not for just being rude, aggressive, or antisocial, but for minor infractions, like too many replies to the same thread due to the vagaries of email delivery, which is often beyond your control. I also say that since it's text, nobody is sitting behind you suggesting you read every single thread or post. Just zoom over what you don't want, for goodness sake! I am one of those who still use Usenet groups. There are still free servers out there for this. I'd not trust Google's interface. It's rubbish. But there are some groups, even unmoderated ones, surprisingly free of trolls and spammers. I do find social media too urgent, i.e. it's more like a chat line I used to monitor on Prestel, which was probably the most boring job in the world. If you think fake news and trolling is a recent problem, then it's not. We were dealing with it on Prestow back in the 1990s, but we had the ultimate weapon. We could suspend the idiot's subscriptions to the service. So writes Brian Gaff. I am having deeply profound traumatizing trauma as I read that, Brian, because, yes, one of the bugbears for moderators is people who do not take the time to read the thread to find out if a message has been answered and whether you're adding any value before replying. And I can immediately think of names. I could start naming people who constantly do this on every list they're on. 
They're like the kid in the class that puts their hand up and goes, me, 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 miss me, because they think they have the answer to every question, even though the question has been satisfactorily answered and dealt with by the time they get to it. If you're going to be on an email list, a good bit of netiquette is to have the responsibility and the decency to read a thread, finish it off before you reply, and then only reply if you can add value. Because there ain't no points for the number of messages that people send to email lists. In fact, what often happens is that people who post way too much with poor signal-to-noise ratio, they just get deleted automatically without people opening the messages because people have become conditioned to suspecting that what they're going to be writing is rubbish. So please, everyone on email lists still, read the thread, determine if you can add value. If not, move on. Thank you. I still use mailing lists, reports Rebecca Skipper, but I'd like to learn more about setting up rules in Outlook to minimize distractions. Should I create a separate mailbox? I love getting feedback and assistance through mailing lists, but things can quickly get out of hand if people become passionate about a topic or have a disagreement. I still find email more convenient than social media, but both can be distracting. Can you recommend any accessible timekeeping apps or apps to minimize distractions, both on iOS and Windows, maybe for Android as well for other users? I've not investigated that category of product, Rebecca, so we'll throw it open and find out if anybody has a particularly favorite accessible way, I guess, of logging your time is what you're asking for. Coming back to email lists and your question about rules, doing it in Outlook is one way, and in the old POP3 days, and there are much better ways of getting your email now than POP3, but in the old POP3 days, I used to have an elaborate set of rules in Microsoft Outlook. Sometimes, for example, I just wouldn't have time to read all the email lists and I'd need to go current, but I would have rules that would filter any email list traffic that mentioned me or specific topics I'm interested in or organizations I was involved with and put it in a folder so I could catch up on things that I might need to respond to. Now, I would recommend that you connect to your email via IMAP, of course, which is a far more powerful and sophisticated way of connecting, especially if you clear your email on multiple devices. And a good IMAP provider will provide you with rules. I have my own domains hosted by DreamHost at the moment, and they have a very accessible web-based portal where you can go in and create these rules. For example, I'm on the Reapers Without Peepers list, and I've gone into DreamHost, my provider, and I created a server-side IMAP rule that filters all my email that comes through to that list into an RWP, Reapers Without Peepers, folder. And that way I'm not distracted, and I can make a point of visiting that list whenever I want to. And because that is server-side and it's using IMAP, and of course, I'm connecting with IMAP on all my devices. The rule applies everywhere. Works on the iPhone, works on my desktop, works on my laptop. It just does its thing. Works on the iPad as well. So I have a number of rules like that that filter email based on various criteria. But if you only check your email, say, on one computer, then you could use POP3 and Outlook rules. This means also, for example, that if you have a bunch of email folders where you file email for further attention or just for archival purposes, 
With IMAP, you can, of course, just move that email to a given folder, and it happens right across all your devices because it's server-side. And because your folders are on the server, it means that if something goes wrong at your end, the email is backed up in the cloud. Tracy Duffy says, first of all, I'm glad the petition regarding Apple and VoiceOver is coming along. It's encouraging, and I hope it will bring something positive. Next, I am still part of a few email groups, as well as being on Facebook and Twitter. Email groups can offer a bit more privacy, but still give you a way to be social with specific people, and you can have ongoing discussion more easily via email groups. Here's Bruce Taves, and I do recall that I gifted him my blind tech list. I don't know if blind tech is still going, but I set that up, I think, in the 90s sometime, and decided to clear the decks a bit and he took it over he says i used to love mailing lists it made me feel important to get hundreds of emails a day but over time i decided that there was no fun in them the signal to noise ratio was as you say ridiculous the amount of drama staggering and the number of times i allowed myself to be sucked into the drama pathetic So now I only belong to lists that are necessary for the things with which I'm involved. But as I said, early on, mailing lists were so exciting for me. I loved setting them up. This was in the early days when Major Domo was big and Listserv was the ultimate. I loved setting up lists, particularly with Listserv. At one point, I decided to start a list for fans of Paul Harvey News and Comment. Near the beginning of the process, I got a very nice email from a cab driver who was looking to create a web presence for himself and was wondering if I'd like to work with him. I thought, who'd want to go to a web page about some New York cab driver when I was going to go places with a mailing list for fans of the great Paul Harvey? Well, my list went absolutely nowhere fairly quickly and the cab driver whom I politely turned down, went on to be the world-famous Peter Franklin, known as the Gabby Cabby, who gets interviews on radio from all over the world. This is what's known in the screwing-up business as a major missed opportunity. There's a lesson in there somewhere. Yep, that's right up there with guitar groups are on the way out, Mr. Epstein, when Decker refused the Beatles. Hey, Jonathan. Yeah, I just thought I'd chip in a bit about email lists. Uh, I certainly have been on my share uh, over a lifetime. <laughs> I've uh, published my first issue of Odyssey onto an email list called Sky Club that the CNIB was running, the library staff of the CNIB. Uh, and it was it was a good idea at the time. You know, it was, it was one of these things where people could gather and, and they'd have monthly topics to encourage discussion and then they'd let people just, you know, communicate with each other. And uh, I started quite a flame war by sending my first Odyssey issue out, this big, huge, you know, it must have been 20-page magazine. <laughs> I never want to moderate one again. Uh, I was in that role for some time as uh, editor of Odyssey and, and sort of was pushed into, well, well you, you should take charge of these lists and solve problems and solve disputes since you know so much about the topic. And, and there I was suddenly in this role of trying to be that diplomat. Um, and you couldn't always tell sort of how things started. You'd have to wade back into the emails and find out what set it off. And I, I never want to do that again. Uh, it's tough. It's real. it's a tough 
road to walk because if you're too strict about the rules, you there are consequences. There are prices to be paid for that, including community cohesion, including people who you don't want to lose. Some of the real big experts, I've seen that happen. They'll walk away uh, because you know, the list is just too strictly moderated or you know, things like that. And it just isn't gelling. So, you know, I've seen, I've seen too loose moderation. I've seen it go the other way. And then you lose community cohesion because everyone's afraid to just do those social posts that, that, you know, are the glue that holds things together. So yeah, it's a tightrope. It's, it's a tough thing to do. I think email lists are still useful, but I'm glad I'm on them as a casual user. Uh, you know, I can, I can pick my moments to, contribute. I can pick my moments when I really want to follow them or whether I just assume read a book. And uh, there's there's less expectation. Uh, and, and that I, I, is a useful position. Hi again, Jonathan, writes Floor Lynch. Two more topics I'm thinking of, which might be good for Mosin at Larges to ponder. Is anyone besides me and a few others using Braille watches anymore? I am. I much prefer that as a means of checking the time discreetly. But such watches appear to be increasingly scarce, or perhaps they aren't made to the standards of yore. I hear that one well-known organization's Braille watches are now quite unreliable. For me, the computer timekeeping is a fallback if the Braille wristwatch stops or gets broken. Thank you, Flora. I'll come back to your second point in just a minute, but just to address the first one from my perspective, as many people may be aware now, (laughs) I do have an Apple Watch. It's working again uh, with the developer Beta 5. And of course, there is a thing called tap tick time, so you can just double tap the watch face and it'll vibrate the time for you in a pattern that you can learn very easily. It wasn't always there. I'm glad it was added because as somebody who has chaired a good number of meetings in my life with a large number of blind people present, it's very distracting when people keep checking their talking watches all the time. And it can be pretty rough on your self-esteem. I mean, if you're giving the speech of a lifetime and you think, whoa, this speech is a barn burner, dude. And then you hear people, you know, going, it's 5.50 a.m. and they're all doing it and they're checking the time. It's really demoralizing yes i've never been a fan of the talking watches so i do appreciate the tactic time feature of the apple watch very much before i had the apple watch because like you i found braille watches had become really unreliable i got talked into buying one of these bradley timepieces i guess they're still around and i really liked that it's a different concept where you have two ball bearings on the side of the watch with the numerals on the the, the regular place where you would expect the numerals to be on a watch. It looks apparently really classy. It's a very nice looking timepiece that you can be proud to be seen wearing. It seems reliable enough. And because the ball bearing things are on the side and they kind of swing back into place if you accidentally bump them. You don't need a lid on the watch. It's quite an interesting design, the Bradley timepiece. If others have them, I'd be interested to know what you think of them. The second point Floor makes is I grew up reading several Braille, with a capital B, magazines posted from America, the UK and Ireland. Some of the British magazines still exist, although they are now more accessible online. Two American magazines that no longer exist that I used to get are the Matilda Ziegler 
and the Braille Institute's Braille Mirror. There was also a children's magazine. Was it Braille Expectations, he says, from the Braille Institute that had a scratch-and-sniff page in each issue? And it did convey the scent of the substance it was illustrating. Thank you very much, Floor. I remember expectations with a great deal of fondness. We all at school, at least the Braille readers, when I was a kid, used to get the expectations. They had some really good stories in them, actually. But they would take a while to arrive because they would send free matter from the blind from the United States. So they'd go by surface mail, by ship. But eventually they would turn up in the day that the teacher told us that the expectations had arrived. We were like, squee, although we didn't say squee back then. And we'd all get our individual copies of expectations to keep. And in the middle, we would find the sniffables page and we would go straight to the sniffables page and scratch and sniff. And we just thought that was fantastic. And eventually we would get to the stories. We used to get a lot of magazines here in New Zealand too, Trends magazine was a really good one. I think that was done by the Scottish Braille Press and it had all sorts of pop stories, sort of pop culture stories, the charts from the UK. And uh, my friend Mark, he liked Trends so much, he actually got his own subscription to it. We had things like Wee Wisdom and the Daily Word. I think that was done by Clovernook. Oh man, I'm trying to remember what else there was. Now, of the new beacon from the RNIB, we got that. There was a thing called Roundabout which I think was for kids, that also came from the RNIB. So a lot of magazines that we used to get and read and really enjoy. And I used to write letters in Braille to some of those magazines. I am pretty sure Matilda Ziegler is no longer a thing, that they tried to adapt to the online age and start an online publication and it didn't go so well. And I understand that it has now wound up but somebody might be able to tell us a bit more about that. But yes, good subjects there, Floor. Watches, Braille watches, and the magazines in Braille that we either used to read or still do. You can have your say. Drop us an email with an audio attachment or write something down and send it in to jonathan at mushroomfm.com or you can call the listener line in the United States, 864 864- 60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736. Mosin at Large Podcast. Gino J has been in touch to raise one of the big issues this week in the blind community, and that is that Ira has made a call, if you'll pardon the pun, that they will only allow one free call every 24 hours of five minutes duration if you don't have an Ira account. If you do, if you're a paid-up Ira explorer, then you are able to have one five-minute call every four hours. And I think that's sensible and sustainable. While it does trouble me that Ira is such an empowering, enabling service that lots of people could benefit from using it, Ira has to keep the lights on. The agents have to be paid. The people that write the code have to be paid. And looking at the stats that Troy published earlier in the week, I can see that clearly it was going to be unsustainable. It had become unsustainable And I suspect the offer was always unsustainable. It's served its purpose, I would think, in that once you understand how Ira can make a difference in your life, you really want to use it. I do hope that Ira is continuing to work with rehab systems in the markets that they serve because some blind people genuinely can't afford it. And I really do feel for people in that situation. 
So I also hope that rehab agencies are thinking carefully about the empowerment that IRA brings and that more rehab agencies and governmental programs will fund IRA. I do know of people who have been to Lions Clubs and other service groups to seek funding for IRA. So that's an option as well. But if they don't come up with a sustainable business model, then we all lose, right? Because IRA would go away. So I know it will be really disappointing to a lot of people who have come to integrate IRA in their lives, who may not have many pennies to rub together, but it clearly was getting untenable for them. So I understand that they must have been between a rock and a hard place. Hello, Jonathan. It's Thomas Upton, and I'm only here for one question. And the question is, are there any DVD ripping apps accessible for Windows from a blindness perspective? Like, I remember a long time ago when you were demonstrating the Walter 2 app to transfer a ringtone from your computer to your iPhone. You gave one of the examples that if you have a video file ripped from a DVD, then it will appear on the TV app on your iPhone. See, it just goes to show people are full of surprises because I thought when I got this email from Thomas with an audio attachment that he was bound to say, given his fascination with radio history in the blind community, that the 22nd of August is the fifth anniversary of Mushroom FM returning to the air, but no. And then I thought, well, maybe he's going to say that we're at the year anniversary of when we started publishing Mosin at Large, but no again. See, it is good when people are unpredictable. This is a way of me stalling because I don't have a direct answer to your question. I have an old Windows app that still works, that serves my purposes, and it's called DVD Audio Extractor. It's really cool, and I used to use it a lot for extracting the audio from DVDs and turning them into MP3 files, or I think it does M4A, it certainly does OG, and that would suit me because obviously the video was useless to me and it just took up space. So maybe somebody can comment on tools that are out there for Windows that are accessible and rip DVDs. Go for it. On the subject of using the web, here's Howard Goldstein to start off this part of the conversation. He says, hi, Jonathan. I wanted to comment on the topic of needing to switch screen readers while browsing. I use JAWS for just about everything, but I do find that I sometimes need to switch to another screen reader to get something done on a web page. For example, using Chrome or the new Edge On a site that contains a list of items that can be checked or unchecked, JAWS is not good at telling you the initial state of these items, whereas NVDA gets it right every time. Another one that really annoys me is that it's virtually impossible to adjust the speech rate for the read-aloud voices in Edge while using JAWS. With NVDA and Narrator, this can be done very simply. Try it if you don't believe me, he says. Andrew Repsha says, Hi Jonathan, on your scale of 1 to 10, I give the cyber world an 8. Yeah, 8 is enough, eh? I use Chrome and Edge with JAWS. I'm quite happy with my recent lack of frustration compared with some low points over the last 20 years. I can't go for 10 because I can't be certain as to whether my remaining dissatisfaction is fixable or if the linear way in which we approach things will always be slightly at odds with visually appealing web development. 
I am personally optimistic about that final 2%. One further comment. When I first began using Chrome, I adopted a convention that I still use. When I want to bookmark something, I go to the address bar, copy the link, and create an internet shortcut within my favorites folder or one of its subfolders. Organizationally, I just like it better than Chrome's bookmark system. There is the added benefit that, if the browser is not currently open, I can pick a favorite and it will launch Chrome, skip the home page and open the desired page. Keep rocking it, says Andy. Thank you, Andy. And indeed, David Kingsbury, who was on the show last week, made exactly this suggestion. I wonder if other browsers, particularly the new Edge, will start using that favorites folder. Thanks for raising this issue on your latest episode of your podcast, says Dan Tebbeld. I would say on a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 is poor and 10 is excellent, I would rate web accessibility at 4. There are still some serious issues which need to be addressed. I recently lost my job in Illinois and find many barriers in using state websites. Pages lack consistent navigation and meaningful page titles, headings, landmarks, links, and lists. Forms are incorrectly implemented. Radio button and checkboxes are not operable from the keyboard, either using native keyboard or screen reader commands, and they aren't announced correctly by screen readers. When forms submit, there is no spoken error or confirmation message. If there are errors, the screen reader should speak the number of errors and move focus to the first field in the error. Rarely happens. Captures are inaccessible. Sites are only optimized for Internet Explorer and JAWS. Another disturbing trend I see is that many sites have accessibility statements, but the site's owners don't explain how or what was tested for accessibility and who did the testing. People think accessibility should be done once and then that item could be considered complete. Most sites barely meet the WCAG 2.0 standard and that standard is about to be updated to version 2.1. Even people working for government agencies aren't aware of what accessibility means or have competent people to do the testing and remediation. I rate website accessibility 7 out of 10, says Kathy Blackburn. When headings were in fashion, sites were easier to navigate. One local food shopping site is so cluttered I have to check my shopping cart to make sure I'm getting the items I want rather than an item above or below the thing I wanted. My newspaper's website has a link to something called Austin 360 Radio above the news stories. Fortunately, the music doesn't play automatically but I feel that the link, along with the title of the song currently playing, gets in the way of my finding the news stories I've come to the site to read. Thanks, Kathy. I wonder if you use the non-linked text feature, which is quite good. It's in in JAWS, and you can actually set the number of characters that JAWS should consider non-linked text and jump you to. I find this a very handy feature in JAWS and you can just jump straight to it. It is a good fallback when there aren't headings and landmarks, but certainly the sites should be in an ideal world marked up correctly. Mouse in the
I'd like to thank the over 1,000 people now who have signed the petition on watchOS, or more specifically, the petition that says to Apple, when you know that there's a build here that completely locks out a group of disabled people, don't release it. Treat it as a show-stopping feature and really show your commitment to accessibility even in the beta stage. Many people have got the fundamentally important principle that this petition is advocating. Some, of course, have not. And therefore, when, as I expected, watchOS Developer Beta 5 was released with VoiceOver back again, some people said, see, see, what a complete waste of time. What an overreaction. That fundamentally misses the point. I had no doubt, as I said, actually, in the podcast last week, that watchOS 7 will come out with VoiceOver and all will be well. But the fact remains that at a point at which bug reporting is critical because time is running out to fix those bugs before the golden master of watchOS 7 is released, blind people lost two important weeks to feedback. Anyway, a lot of people get the point, so I do thank you for signing. A lot of people have written to me to say, I've never signed one of these before. Usually I think they're a waste of time, but there really is an important precedent here and a principle here that we really have to stand up and be counted about because it's watchOS today. Maybe it will be iOS in another cycle if we don't try and get this principle established. And it's particularly high impact if you got automatically updated from developer beta 3 to developer beta 4 of watchOS, because with watchOS, unlike iOS, you can't go back. I'm well aware, as someone who has product managed a lot of IT projects and a lot of betas, that bugs happen. And that's why I always have a good encrypted backup of my last iOS 13 installation. So if things really go bad, I can go back, no harm done really, especially when so much is stored in the cloud these days and life goes on. But of course, in this case, for those who were automatically updated because they just forgot that automatic updates were turned on, they lost their watch access for two weeks. But as I say, most important of all, we lost the ability to give that feedback at that all critical time, just as Golden Master draws near. Hello, Jonathan, says Marissa. I completely agree with your podcast about watchOS and voiceover not even working in a beta build. I did sign your petition. I am surprised at Apple's decision to intentionally release the beta without voiceover working for beta testers. You bring up very good points regarding accessibility, voiceover being the only screen reader on the iOS, iPadOS, watchOS, tvOS, etc., Thank you very much for signing the petition, Marissa. I do appreciate that. Hey, Jonathan. My name is Dewey. I'm in Kansas City, uh, pretty much the middle of America. I wanted to leave a comment about this um, Apple not not having voiceover on the watch beta. What people need to realize, people have to, people tend to forget things um, in, in the past. It took a lawsuit to get Apple to make iDevices accessible in the first place. People tend to forget about that. Apple does not care about that stuff. It, you know, they had to be sued. Um, I'm not trying to sound negative or anything. Um, in my experience, blind people tend to, um, not all blind people, but a lot of them, my experience, they tend to gripe and complain and moan. But when it comes time to take action, 
they don't they don't do anything. Um, not just with Apple, but with everything. I do appreciate Apple having the uh, accessibility line, and I appreciate them having where you know they can screenshot with you. I've used a lot of. Matter of fact, I got to call them again today or tomorrow. Uh, I bought a MacBook Air a month ago, and I'm still trying to learn how to use it. So I've talked to the accessibility line many, many times, and they're very helpful. So I do appreciate having that. I went with Android for a couple of months, but I came back to iOS because I had Carpal Tunnel. And so with Android, the, uh, the Braille support is almost nothing. It's gotten better, but I've got Carpal Tunnel, so I have to. it's easier to control the phone with my Braille display. So that's why I went back to Apple. Hope you can get Apple's attention on that. But look, we're such a small customer base. They could just write us off. They wouldn't lose much money. They didn't. They make a lot of money off of, off of us. But Apple, they're about to reach $2 trillion. They don't care about fine customers. Good to hear from you. And you make a really important point about the lawsuits. These things usually don't happen by accident. They happen through advocacy and activism. As I said last week, Apple's such a large company that sometimes we view it as almost its own entity, that it's some sort of monolithic monster. Whereas, in fact, Apple is made up of people, of humans, many of whom I believe, and in fact I have direct evidence of it, care very deeply about blind people and the good that they are doing. Let's not lose sight of the fact that Although I think it is important to stand up and be counted on this issue, and people may agree or disagree with me about that, and that's perfectly fine, what a difference this company has made. When you look at how we were using technology in 2009, when VoiceOver first came to iOS, and how we're using technology now, and the apps that we use that are now just almost household names in the blind community, certainly the connected blind community, and how they've changed our lives. Things like Be My Eyes and Ira and Voice Dream Reader and various GPS apps and the developers of mainstream products who care so passionately that they go out of their way to make sure that their apps are super accessible. And year on year, Apple, in other words, the people at Apple, people with great ideas and really gifted, clever engineers, bring this product to life in ways that many of us couldn't really have dreamed of. So that is pretty rocking, isn't it? So while we can respectfully say, look, I think there could be some improvement in this area, I am still very grateful for all of the individuals at Apple who have changed my life immeasurably. And I send my profound gratitude and thanks for all that they have done and continue to do. Zachary Benawi is in touch and he says, Hi Jonathan, let me first start off by saying that I really enjoy your show and respect you very much as an individual and advocate for the blindness community. (laughs) You know there's a but coming, right? However, here we go. I have serious issues with your petition regarding the watchOS beta not including support for voiceover. As many people on both AppleVis and Twitter have pointed out, this petition is a waste of time and energy that could be better be put to use targeting other companies such as Google and their serious quality control issues when it comes to accessibility. For example, 
when the Pixel 4 was released, one of the headlining features, the new Google Assistant, was completely disabled if TalkBack was running. To my knowledge, there is no technical reason why TalkBack should need to be disabled in order for the new Assistant to work. I could be wrong, and I'm willing to be corrected. However, it doesn't seem to me that this barrier should have been in place. Apple, in stark contrast, has never disabled an essential feature just because VoiceOver was active. In fact, many features that would have been thought to be inaccessible, such as exploring the map with Apple Maps, have worked well with VoiceOver from day one. Google also has several issues with their various services, such as YouTube and Google Drive, that can sometimes make them very difficult to use with a screen reader, especially VoiceOver. Case in point, the YouTube app currently has an annoying bug that causes VoiceOver to switch to the earpiece whenever the app is launched after having been killed from the app switcher. While there are workarounds, in my opinion, this bug should have never made it to final release. This shows to me that Google does not do enough accessibility testing with assistive technology in order to find issues like this. And to me, it is a big problem. This combination with TalkBack just now gaining support for multi-touch gestures when this screen reader has been around for nearly as long as VoiceOver says to me that VoiceOver is not very high on the priority list. Again, Apple is constantly pushing the barrier when it comes to accessibility, and I think at this point Google is so far behind that they will never be able to catch up. Now back to the petition. I will say this, I can certainly understand your frustration of not being able to use your watch while Apple fixes this bug. I also agree to a point that they shouldn't have this bug in the first public beta, However, a week was most likely not enough to fix this particular problem. This is mainstream software, not specialized software designed for the blind. This is beta software and is also not designed exclusively for use by blind people. This software is for testing and giving feedback to Apple about all features, not just voiceover. I don't believe for one second that Apple intentionally removed voiceover from the beta in order to exclude blind people from testing. I imagine what most likely happened was that VoiceOver had a serious flaw that would impact the watch, presumably battery life going by the release notes, and Apple felt it would be in the best interests of everyone if VoiceOver was removed until this problem could be fixed, which it subsequently was in the next developer and public beta. Thanks very much for your thoughts, Zachary, and I'll go through some of those. First of all, it does sound really unfortunate regarding the Google Pixel issue. And if I was in the Google ecosystem, I would be concerned about that. And I might even start a petition. The reality is that I am not. I'm very much in the Apple ecosystem. The only Google product we own is one little Google Home. I don't even own an Android phone at the moment because it just doesn't meet my needs. And so I would welcome Anybody setting up a petition, anyone can. So I'm just one blind guy who felt strongly about this issue and decided to set up a petition on this particular issue. I don't think it's my role to set up petitions on every accessibility issue that irks people. I've never actually set up a petition in my life before, but I think the principle, which is clearly eluding some people on this issue, 
is so important that it encouraged me to do something that I've never done in my life before and set up an online petition. And in fully agreeing with you about the state of Google products, I have expressed that agreement and my concern by something much stronger than a petition. I haven't bought their stuff. I haven't bought their stuff because I also fully agree with you about Apple's commitment to accessibility, as I've already mentioned earlier in response to another caller. So the fact that Google has, in my view, not kept up is reflected in the fact that I choose to take my business elsewhere. Having done that, I feel that I have a stake in making sure that the product I have chosen is as reliable and accessible as possible. Secondly, I guess the rest of your message, there's a lot of speculation there. I don't agree with you. Having been a product manager and faced critical bugs before and worked with engineers who care very much about the products that they put together, I simply disagree with you that a week was not sufficient time to fix this bug. It's a question of priorities, and if the bug had disabled a larger group of users, then it would have been fixed very quickly. In the end, the question is, how many resources from this $2 trillion company, the first $2 trillion company in history, do they choose to allocate to this issue? I also don't agree with you that Apple deserves a free pass in some way or lesser scrutiny because they are not specifically a blindness technology company. When you start developing screen readers, you become a blindness technology company in addition to everything else that you do. This accessibility thing can't just be for show. It can't just be for showing nice videos at WWDC and having tech journalists say, aren't they marvelous? The beta testing process, particularly when the blind community has some confidence issues at the moment due to repeated quality control issues, is really important. And there are some suggestions that Apple's special event could be happening on the 10th of September. So those two critical weeks that we lost to give feedback are important in terms of stability. I do fully agree with you that the software is for testing, the software will have bugs, and the software is all about reporting those bugs, which is exactly why I started the petition. I have heard people at Apple say that accessibility is in the very DNA of Apple. And actually, I believe that that is mostly true. As you say, they've got an amazing track record. However, They essentially released a public beta that said any member of the public who has a compatible device can test this, except if you're blind. That is so antithetical to Apple's normal culture that I do think it is worthy of being called out. I don't think that the argument that Google is worse, so stop picking on Apple, holds much water. Really, we should hold Apple to the high standard that we expect from Apple because we do pay a premium for Apple products. And I think what some people are missing with this petition is that it was never specifically about watch OS. It was never about that. The watch OS issue was a catalyst. The petition doesn't ask Apple to restore voiceover to watch OS. If it had asked that, then I would have taken the petition down by now. What it seeks is a commitment from Apple that when they release a beta, it should not knowingly disable access for any group of disabled people. You have twisted my words, misinterpreted my words in your email. I have never said that Apple somehow deliberately chose to disable voiceover in a beta. 
What I said was that they have deliberately chosen to release a beta where they knew that a bug prevented voiceover from working. That is quite a different thing. And what I am saying is, there are show-stopping things that stop betas from going public. And in my view, a feature that locks out a group of disabled people, whether that be those who can't hear, those who can't see, whatever, from being able to test and give feedback and make the product better, reaches that threshold. It can be really buggy. Maybe by accident sometimes they'll release something that disables voiceover, but to release it and put it in the release notes says that they knew that this was a problem, but they released anyway. For me, that is a step too far. And I agree with you that for Google to do what they have done, and for that matter, something that we've talked about on the show in the past, where Sony on their Bravia TVs have required you to disable their screen reader before you can turn on the HDMI ARC port, that is terrible as well. So I agree. And if others want to create petitions on those issues, I think that's a really proactive, positive thing to do. We should not settle for second-class accessibility. And yes, there have been some people on Twitter and elsewhere who have opposed the petition. That is true. You'll always get people who will wield out the pretty easily wield out weapon of personal attack. You get some people who misunderstand the petition. And that includes those who think that this is somehow just about watchOS 7 and that it should be taken down now that the bug is fixed. You get some people who haven't even read the petition but just like to uh, campaign against what they perceive to be whiny, entitled blind people, even though it was those same whiny, entitled blind people that advocated hard for the access they now enjoy and the access that they now use to criticize people. And then you get some people who genuinely have very cogent philosophical arguments in disagreement, and that's fair enough. But in the end, each of us has to do what we believe to be right. Anyone can start a petition, and as I put this together, we have 1,327 signatories on it. For quite a niche issue, I'm delighted with that. Here's an email from Iona, who says, I am a classical guitarist from Montreal and a latecomer to your podcast. What? I hope you brought a note, Iona. (laughs) But have often followed with interest your valuable contributions about technology and advocacy, etc., Thanks for a thoughtful, nuanced, informative, and fun coverage of relevant issues in the VI community. I'd like to hear you play classical guitar, Iona. Do we get to hear that anywhere? I am, she continues, dismayed at the debacle. Oh, I do love that word. (laughs) The debacle with Watch OS 7 Beta and VoiceOver and have signed and shared your petition. Thank you. I unfortunately have to let you know in case you don't already, that the latest iOS 14 public beta completely broke on-screen Braille input, at least for me. Typing feedback for words does not work, and neither does speak of deleted characters or words. Since this is my main way of writing on the iPhone, it's a showstopper in my book. I will have to opt out and stop testing because I don't have a backup device. I know there is still dictation and Bluetooth keyboard input options and Braille input was a later addition to iOS, but I think it is indispensable for those who use it heavily. And that's not all. I am aware that not everyone uses Siri shortcuts extensively, 
but I have created lots of them, some containing up to a hundred actions that I use for work. That is impressive. Since this latest public beta, the list of shortcuts in the app is not read by voiceover, so there is no easy way to choose one from the list to run. You have to edit it and see if it's the one that you want. This is very serious for me, but I would not consider it an unacceptable bug for a beta. I'm quite adventurous and good at working around problems and love testing and giving feedback. So it's the first time I have encountered two major problems at once that, each on their own, would have been enough to make me return to iOS 13. Thanks, Iona. Yes, I can confirm both of those, and I kind of regret that I didn't tweet about this. I got the developer beta before it was released as a public beta, and I did notice immediately, because like you, Browse Screen Input is my primary input method, that Browse Screen Input had some bugs. I couldn't confirm it with sufficient people to feel confident about tweeting about it before the public beta was released, because it's a bit like crying fire in a crowded theater. You don't want to put people off doing the install if you're wrong. But it turns out I was right. It's affecting everybody, it seems. And I'm sure people are reporting that. And I do hope that Apple will address that because it is a very popular and well-designed way to input text on the screen. That said, I will defend Apple and say that this is absolutely within the range of what one might expect in a beta cycle. It's not like they've knowingly released with something completely broken so that people are locked out. As you say, there are other input methods. So all good stuff in beta land and well within spec for what you might expect in a situation like this. I do hope it's a bug that gets fixed before release, though. And I can also confirm your shortcuts issue. Iona wrote back and said, you know, she's had some time to reflect and she's got some workarounds. She's using mBraille, which is, of course, a third party Braille screen input utility that you can get from the App Store. So that will keep her inputting away for now. And she also has moved some of her most used shortcuts to the home screen where she can access them. So well done for finding the workarounds, Iona. And I am sure that Apple will appreciate your feedback. While we are talking about the latest state of play with iOS 14, I am delighted, delighted to say that Apple has fixed one of my big pet peeve bugs. Can you hear that? I'm knocking on the wood. And the reason why I'm knocking on the wood is because this bug has come and gone over successive releases. I mean, not just the last one, not just the last uh, operating system, but the iOS 13, but successive releases. It was there in iOS 13 when it was released, and then it got fixed for a glorious few little point whatever releases it was fixed, and life was good, and the birds just seemed to be singing that much more sweetly, and I could smell the flowers, and it was it was bliss. And then I got one of those little point updates again, and it broke. It broke again. And it's been broken ever since until iOS 14, whatever the current public beta is, where it's at the developer beta 5. The one to which I am referring relates to notifications. And if you have as many apps as I do that push you breaking news stories and stuff, what would happen is that you would wake up in the morning and you'd look at your notifications and you would just quickly flick through them in an ideal world. And then you can clear them all at once once you flip through them. 
But with this bug, you would get to a point where the notifications would not scroll infinitely anymore just by flicking right. And so it would go bonk and you would know that there were more notifications there. So the only way to deal with them was to clear each notification or notification group once you dealt with it, which made the process a lot more tedious. So in this current iOS build, it's working again. Hallelujah. And I just hope that it will continue to work as we get close to the release of iOS 14, because it really does speed you way up. While we're talking about Apple things, you will remember that in last week's exciting installment, Gary O'Donoghue was saying, what's gone wrong with Siri? What the soup is wrong with Can you say soup on the BBC? I hope not. Hope you can't say soup on the BBC. But anyway, he was concerned about his Siri performance. And I was saying that I have seen this from time to time as well. Dawn in Sydney is contributing on this. She says, I hadn't noticed anything wrong with Siri until I was listening to your podcast and realized that I'd been having this problem without knowing it. This morning especially, I was trying to phone a friend, just like on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and I was getting, I don't get that. I do hope this will be fixed in iOS 14. Thanks as usual for your informative podcast. I have also noticed, says Kathy Blackburn, Siri's slow response when setting a timer on my Apple Watch. Also, I used to be able to ask Siri what baseball games are being played today, and Siri would respond with the first four or five games, then ask if you want to hear the next four or five games. I would answer yes, and Siri would continue listing the games. Now, after the first four games have been listed, and I have answered the question, I do want to hear the next games on the list, Siri says, "Uh Uh-oh, something went wrong. Try again later. Oh, my gosh. I'm sorry to hear that, Kathy. I don't know what version of the Apple Watch you have, what series, but certainly in my WatchOS Series 3, it was pretty slow, man. On the WatchOS Series 5, it is much, much better. The processor is, I think, the same in the Series 4 as well. So if you have the Series 4, you should be getting okay performance. And if you are not, then that does suggest a bug. Certainly that baseball issue would be very clearly a bug. Daniel Jacob, he's not happy. He says, I knew Siri was bad, but I didn't realize it was that bad. Does somebody want to tell me why I had to ask Google how big the screen of an iPhone 6S is? Apple can't even have its own search engine answer questions about its own products. Well, let's see. We'll uh, just wind a few things up in the mix here and see what we get. So we'll ask the Siri first. How big is the screen on the iPhone 6S? Okay, I found this on the web for how big is the screen on the iPhone 6S. Check it out. Okay, so I presume that if I just have a look, I've got to turn speech on. on. There we go. The iPhone 6S and iPhone 6S Plus are smartphones that were designed, developed, and dot wikipedia.org. Yeah, so it's got got the Wikipedia. So you don't get a straight answer to the question. I imagine it's buried away there. Soup drinker. How big is the screen on the iPhone 6S? The iPhone 6S has a 4.7 inches screen with a screen resolution of 1,334 pixels by 750 pixels, making it a 720p HD screen. It has a display sharpness of 326 pixels per inch. 
Ooh, that's given you so much information, you're almost sorry you asked the question. All right, so now let's ask the Google thing. How big is the screen on the iPhone 6S? 4.7 inch. According to Digital Trends, size remains the main difference in terms of design. However, with the iPhone 6S Plus offering 5.5 inches of screen real estate compared to the 4.7 inch display in the 6S. Well, yeah, I have to agree. I don't know whether I'm enraged by it as you are, Daniel, but it is intriguing, isn't it? It, it, is, it does seem like a shortcoming. Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Podcast. John Melia writes in to say, Jonathan, I have recently reformatted my PC. I have discovered that Windows Media Player is gone. It is no longer in the Microsoft Store. Apparently, it has happened to a lot of folks. I forgot to say, I am using Windows 10. What player do you use on your PC? I have tried VLC and FUBAR and not happy. Windows Media Player was the best. You could do anything with it. Oh, by the way, Internet Explorer did not come back either. I always enjoy the podcast. Thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you, John. I use Winamp. Some people are going to say, what? I have a prized copy of the Winamp install. I have a folder in my Dropbox called Essential Software, and that is in my Essential Software folder. I have found nothing that I like better than Winamp. And to me, it doesn't matter that it's an old version or that the code is being developed anymore. Who cares? Because often updates just break stuff and they make things worse rather than better. I don't need Winamp to be updated because it plays all the media I want to play when I'm listening to things on my computer. So Winamp all the way. It's been Winamp for, gosh, what... 23, 24 maybe years, and I can't see that changing in the future. I always found Windows Media Player really bloated and clunky and convoluted, which just goes to show that it's all different strokes, and it's probably also what you get used to. So if you're really familiar with something and you're trying something new, it's going to be some time before it appears to be second nature to you. So you may just have to give it time. But I can tell. I can tell from the vibes, mate that you would just like your Windows Media Player back. So I am the bearer of good news. You can absolutely get Windows Media Player back, and I'll show you how to do it. I'm going to go to the Start menu. Search box setting. And type Com- apps. Apps and features. Sy- There's apps and features. I'll press Enter on that. Settings. Apps and features. And now let's tab through this dialog or screen. Apps and features. Optional features link. There is an option called Optional Features, and that's where we need to be, so we'll press Enter. Optional Features, Home button. And we'll tab. Add a Feature button. Now, you will want to go into the Add a Feature button, but you can also have a look at what optional features are installed for you at the moment if we keep going through the screen. So I'll do that. I'll press Tab. See Optional Feature History link. Installed Features. Find an installed optional feature edit. Sort by Name button. List box, Internet Explorer 11. Here's a list of the optional features that I have installed. Internet Explorer is there. Maths Recognizer 16.6, Microsoft Paint 3.3, Microsoft Quick Assist 1.4, Notepad 316 kilobyte, OpenSSH Client 5 points, Print Management Console 1. Point, Steps Recorder 612 kilobyte, Windows Fax and Scan 8.9, Windows Hello Face 40, Windows Media Player 38. And there it is. Windows Media Player is already installed for me. But if it's not installed for you, let's 
Shift tab. Sort by. Find an installed. See optional feature. Add a feature button. And go to the add a feature button. Add an optional feature. Find an available optional feature. Edit. And all you will need to do there is type Windows Media and you should be able to find it or we can press the tab key. Sort by name but list box. Arabic script supplemental fonts 1.64 megabytes collapsed. One of 57. There are 57 features I can add here. Bangla scripts. Canadian Aboriginals. I'll press the space bar on that just as an example. Checked. And it's checked now. Install one button. And there's the install one button. So all you'll need to do is to go into the screen, find Windows Media Player on the list and for that matter... Internet Explorer, if you really must have that back, and check them, and then install. Tap to the install button, and you'll be rocking and rolling. Good morning for me, anyway, Jonathan. This is Paul Paravano calling from the Boston area. We last spoke when we did a little chat about a group of students at MIT who were learning all about Braille and trying to build a product that would be helpful. I think the best thing out of that was that they learned a lot about uh, Braille and hopefully will retain that knowledge. Um, I was thinking over the last few weeks, because it's been a while since you delved into this topic, uh, the use of the word blind uh, when it does not have to do with blind people. And at first I thought I wasn't sure I was on that train quite yet. Uh, because it's so hard for people sometimes uh, to use the word blind. You know how they use sightless and visually impaired, visually challenged. There's a million ways to try to call ketchup golden ambrosia of tomato. But I began thinking about it, and I came up with a couple of words that I are phrases, actually, that really exemplify what I think you're talking about. And one of them is blind date. I don't recall that you use that as an example, but most people think of a blind date as a real shot in the dark, like, uh, you know, you could have a terrible evening, and to associate a blind date with uh, the word blind and the possibility of disaster or something really going awry and having a terrible time and a terrible evening and meeting a terrible person, to associate that with the word blind is I think pretty negative. And uh, I thought, uh, you know, at least if you were having a date with Jonathan or me, you know, you are having a blind date, I guess. But the overall use of the word is generally, I think, pretty negative and connotes the possibility of, you know, just having a, uh, a strong chance, let's put it that way, of having a not very good time meeting somebody. The other one is blind spot. You have a blind spot in your thinking. And that, too, really indicates an emptiness, a lack of knowledge, and completely missing out on a piece of an argument or a a debate. So I think that those are two examples to add to your list of phrases. I'm not remembering all the different ones that you used, but you came up with a pretty good list And I just don't recall whether blind date or blind spot were part of them, but I think they help illustrate your point, convincingly to me anyway, that we ought to encourage the use of the word blind when it means blind people, but beware of using it in any other context because I think in at least these two examples, they give one the impression that something is 
amiss, uh, lacking, shallow, and connected with something that could be unpleasant and less than satisfactory. Great to hear from you, Paul. And I remember that Blindside episode with a lot of fondness when we were talking with those students from MIT. And for those who didn't hear that, they were working on a concept which would see a device being developed where you'd be able to take some print and do instant transcriptions of Braille. Very cool concept, and if it was ever produced in a way that it was viable, I'd be very keen to have that, as I'm sure would many people, just to be able to walk into a room with a wee device that had a bit of refreshable Braille there and instantly get transcription from print to Braille. Definitely agree with you regarding the blind spot one. That is one that I didn't mention before. Blind date. I would be interested in people's thoughts on this. I didn't include blind date deliberately when we were discussing the hijacking of the word blind a few weeks ago on the show. And the reason why I didn't was because I think it's potentially a bit ambiguous. I think you could potentially say that when you're on a blind date, what it means is that you're meeting someone sight unseen. You don't know what they look like. And of course, people can be very superficial and they think that looks matter. So they don't know what to expect when someone turns up, I suppose. So I guess I thought of that more in a visual sense. These days, I guess the term blind date is a bit of a misnomer anyway, because it's pretty easy to look most people's pictures up on Google or use social media to find out what someone looks like. But that's really interesting that you would consider the term blind date to be associated with ignorance as opposed to just not having seen someone Now, it's serendipitous, serendipitous that we're talking about this again, because I just had this come up in my podcast feed and it really annoyed me. Actually, I was listening to the podcast engineering show, which is a podcast I have recommended in the past and still do. And we are on one of these episodes where he's doing his goodie bag and he's going in and talking about some of the posts that he's written about different gadgets and software. I really like geeking out with that show. And he said twice in the same podcast that people shouldn't blindly follow the way other people do their podcasts or the equipment that other people use to do their podcasts. And he said blindly follow twice. What's the synonym there? What could you substitute that with? I guess it's unthinkingly. It's ignorantly, isn't it? It's nothing to do with sight. It's all about ignorance, faculty of mind thinking things through. So that, to me, is using blindness as a synonym for ignorance. And it's a shame that it seems to be allowed to happen. Mosin at Large Podcast! Hi, Jonathan. It's Allison Fallon from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Two things I wanted to uh, tell you. First of all, I'm sorry that you've had problems with COVID-19 in Auckland. I'm assuming that's where you live. I could be wrong, but... I know New Zealand did such a good job before, and uh, it's a shame you're having trouble now. I also wanted to tell you about a podcast that I've heard about and have listened to, and it's really good. It's called Talk Description to Me, and it's out of Canada with wonderful Canadian accents, and it describes for blind people what current events looks like. For instance, it described what it looked like when George Floyd was killed. It described how the baseball stadium 
looks without players. It described what it looked like in Beirut when that horrible explosion happened. And they're very good. They are two Canadians with wonderful Canadian accents. He is an audio describer, and she is a blind woman who works with him. And it's very good. I I get it on my trek. It's pretty easy to find. Thanks so much, Alison, for the recommendation. I've heard good things about that podcast. I haven't checked it out yet, but it sounds like it's performing a very useful service in the blind community. Regarding where we live, we are in Wellington, which is the capital of New Zealand, where we have no cases at all. But there are a few in Auckland, a cluster that is being brought under control through a lockdown process, not quite as strict as our level four. But already we've defined the edges of the cluster. It is being brought under control and we'll be back, hopefully, to some degree of normality very, very quickly. And speaking of New Zealand and COVID-19, an email from John, and he says, I just came across the rubbish which Trump has been spewing about New Zealand and COVID-19. What is your take on that? In my opinion, he has no right to do so. Thanks, John. I would support very strongly the right of anybody to express an opinion when it's expressed respectfully and when it genuinely is an opinion. What I find unconscionable and what I can never support is somebody deliberately lying, particularly the President of the United States, lying. Now, we had three occasions this week, and there may be people in the United States not even familiar with this due to how much media attention there has been on the Democratic Convention this week. So let me recap. Donald Trump has mentioned New Zealand three times this week. First, he volunteered it as an example of how well the United States was doing. And then I believe the other two journalists were coming back to him, clearly pointing out that he was just mistaken. All right. If you say something the first time, one understands that maybe you were just mistaken and you didn't have the facts correct. But when you double down, and of course, this is from the the classic Trump playbook, because a lot of people just don't care about what goes on in New Zealand, and I guess that's fine. So he doubles down or triples down and just keeps telling lies. What he said was that there was a massive surge in New Zealand, uh, a very big surge, and it just goes to show how well the United States is doing with COVID-19. Now, we're all human beings, and I don't make these points to somehow turn this into a competition, because I have family, because of Bonnie, as well as many dear friends and a lot of listeners who I value in the United States. And as a human being, it troubles me greatly to see what's going on with COVID-19 in the United States and how difficult it is for them to control. The United States has 4% of the world's population. It has 25% of the coronavirus cases. And that is clearly due to appalling mismanagement and lack of coordination not taking the virus seriously. For those who do care about the facts, the third day that Donald Trump mentioned New Zealand, the United States on that day had 46,000 new cases of coronavirus, and New Zealand had five. That, according to Donald Trump, signifies a real surge in New Zealand, and the United States has just so got this under control. Now, I'd like to give you some other facts on this matter, and I will leave it at that. 
What I'd like to do is compare New Zealand's COVID-19 outcomes to four US states with a population between 4.7 million and 5.3 million people. The significance of that is that New Zealand's population is in the middle there at a little over 5 million people. We hit 5 million quite recently. So let me go through those stats for you. First, we'll start with South Carolina. Unfortunately, since the COVID-19 outbreak began, they have seen 107,762 cases and sadly 2,343 deaths. Moving on to Alabama, where they have had 110,361 cases and 1,936 deaths. In Colorado, they have had 53,361 cases of COVID-19 since the outbreak, 1,899 deaths. In Minnesota, there have been 66,061 cases of COVID-19 and 1,767 deaths. And so to New Zealand. We have had 1,649 cases of COVID-19 since the outbreak and 22 deaths. If you've lost a family member, a close friend, you know how devastating it is. Now amplify that by 576,000. We hear a big number like that and sometimes we almost get desensitized to those sorts of numbers because it does seem like such a big number and we might shrug our shoulders and say, oh my goodness, isn't that terrible? The United States has more COVID-19 cases than any other country And it's sad to see also that more people currently are infected with COVID-19 in the United States than have recovered from it. But if you take a step back and you remember somebody close to you or someone you deeply valued who has died and you amplify all of that pain, you realize how serious that is. So it is unfortunate that when New Zealand has made a lot of sacrifice to be one of the most successful COVID-19 countries, we went for 102 days without community transmission. The moment that some more community transmission was detected, people made sacrifices. We went very hard. The cluster is clearly coming under control. It is sad that another world leader who is asleep at the wheel chooses to make stuff up about other countries that are doing very well with a very tricky virus. We are going to be hearing a great deal, I'm pleased to say, from Larry Scootcon in a future edition of Mosin at Large, in the very near future, in fact, as we've recorded an interview with him, and we're going to get that on. But Larry also says, regarding the Sony Bravia TVs that some blind people are using, He says, one thing I noticed, speaking of audio description, is that with the easy and instant way to turn it on and off on the broadcast channels with the Sony Bravia, it is immediately and plainly apparent that the quality and even the volume is lower on the alternate channel. Here is another tip with the Sony Bravia TV. Set up your accessibility hotkey, which is a long press of the mute button, to start and stop talkback and use the Sony screen reader for most purposes. Then, when you run into an app that shows a web page or some other element the Sony screen reader does not handle, turn on TalkBack to get through the crunch, then turn it back off when you are past the trouble. 
Interestingly, this does not seem to bother the Sony screen reader. I guess the last guy in line gets all the attention in this case. Thanks a lot, Larry. Good tip. Darren McDougall is writing quite poetically and sort of lyrically in this email. He says, Hi, Jonathan. In my part of Canada, the air has changed a little this week. One can feel the very first tinges of autumn in the air. As we come closer to the cold and dark months ahead, I'm wondering if anyone has any information about whether light therapy boxes may be useful for totally blind people without light perception. Light therapy is designed to mimic natural sunlight for those who suffer from seasonal affective disorder in the fall and winter. I'm wondering if there would be any use for this without light perception. I wonder if there's anything that mimics the feeling of the sun on your face. I'd love to hear any input you or others may have on this, as I find the winter months quite long and desolate. Thanks. Thank you, Darren. Have no idea about this one. Let's see if anyone else can help about whether people who don't have light perception can benefit from light therapy boxes. Really good question. On various blind cultural matters, hello, Jonathan, says Francisco Crespo. On your question of whether there is a blind culture, I would consider that we are community, but I cannot make a clear distinction between both concepts. I had the privilege of attending school with sighted middle upper class kids. My family comes from a similar background. We are all educated. Although I don't feel superior and have lots of blind friends, I sometimes feel that we are surrounded by many people with no skills or good education, and I feel that I don't have a lot in common with them. I have discussed this with some blind friends who come from similar backgrounds, and they feel that there are not many blind people that we can share, for example, deep discussions or good quality books and reads. This is so unfortunate because it is a reflection of the challenges that blind people face today and leads to high unemployment rates. And Bruce Taves is talking on a similar thing. He says, many years ago when I was young and charming, and then he says, sorry, let me start that again. When I was a kid, I attended a camp for the blind, open to any and all blind people. I noticed that there were a lot of people who also had mental and emotional disabilities. I mentioned this to one of the adults there, and he said, if you only knew, there are a lot of blind people who also have mental disabilities. I have reflected on this a lot over the ensuing decades. This is a group the more, quote, higher functioning, unquote, blind people desperately try to distance themselves from. We are so busy trying to show the world how capable and independent we are, we forget that large, very large group of blind people who are not. We demand a voice for ourselves, but in a desperate attempt to make blind people look good, we deny a voice to these other blind people who, through no fault of their own, don't have the same abilities we take for granted. I feel awful for these people who often have only themselves and through the nature of those disabilities, it's not always possible for them to be there for each other. It's a blot on the blind community, I think, that we sweep these people who deserve our understanding and support under the carpet. Thanks, Bruce. I guess my question is what would you have us do differently? It is important that we show empathy and I've often thought that those who think that just because we're disabled ourselves, we have empathy for people with different impairments to us 
or additional impairments to us. It's just not true. And I certainly found that when the whole issue of the headphone jack being taken away from Apple, which was going to have a a really detrimental impact on blind people who use hearing aids in a certain way to plug into their devices, people just didn't care. So I completely understand what you're saying, and I suppose it's a sad facet of human nature. Mosin at Large Podcast. From Michael Bullis. Hi, Jonathan. I'm going to need to edit audio and video content for some programming at our agency. What software do you advise I learn, and where might I find good training tutorials? Mike Reaper should do the job here, and there are tutorials available at reaperaccessibility.com. That's all joined together. And there's also that Reapers Without Peepers email list. You can edit audio in Reaper in a multi-track environment, and you can also load video files and edit those as well. I think I have mentioned this on the podcast before, that one of the challenges I have when editing video is that I obviously can't judge the quality of the finished product. And I know that sometimes when I edit, my facial expressions have changed so much as a result of the edit, even though it sounds great in audio, that apparently it looks quite jarring. Uh, My kids tell me this, but then other people say, they say, be gentle on yourself, because a lot of the cuts in YouTube look pretty bad anyway. So Reaper's very good. I don't know. Clearly, I don't know much about the new Audacity these days, or or if, if anything, to be honest. So I don't know whether you can edit video files in Audacity, but certainly you can do it with Reaper. The advantage of doing it this way, of course, is that you have access to all of the effects that come with Reaper and any manner of external plugins to play with the audio, tinker the video, that kind of thing. Hi, Jonathan. My name is Anil. Regarding healthcare, as you know, when you are very young, let's say five years or about that age, you are being taken care of by your parents. Then after that, you learn everything from your parents healthcare including then you do all those things by yourself while doing it you might unknowingly get into different habits you do not notice them in my experience two years back I met a dentist who came for a consultation for my grandfather's treatment. He is speaking with my dad and my dad asked him to check my teeth. So the dentist checked my teeth and he immediately said, bring your brush and show how you brush your teeth. So I did that and he immediately told you are being over brushing. So that hit me. What? I am brushing it wrong. Then he also demonstrated how I should brush my teeth. It turns out for 
premolars and molars i am brushing at the top of them that is the correct way but if you take incisors and uh, the other teeth which i forgot the name of that teeth you should only brush at the front and at the back if the dentist would not corrected it i could change the shape of my teeth and develop more cavities so this leads me to wonder how many blind people in this brushing case i found out that many of normal that is sighted to be correct persons also do it wrong but i wonder how many blind people take their health care and they think they are doing it correctly but end up doing it wrong in a dangerous manner there is a lovely old poem from the 1970s by a poet in the uk called pam ears called i wish i'd looked after me teeth <laughs> it's a good poem you make a really important and serious point anil and that is that with some of these things people watch other people it's visually easy to learn these techniques but we do have to make sure that as blind people we are given very clear description or sometimes shown directly one on one how to do those things and have someone watch and make sure that we have got it correct hi jonathan says this email my name is devin yellenick and i am from swan river manitoba canada way down upon the oh no that that's a different thing right i have a question for you i got an iphone 8 a while ago since apple removed the headphone jack i haven't been able to record from my phone conversations so how are you recording your phone now that there is no headphone jack oh i love your podcast is devin keep it up well thank you i do appreciate that i don't know whether it came in the box for you devin because i know at some point apple has stopped including this but you can get a little adapter it has a lightning port at one end and a 3.5 mm headphone jack at the other and i have quite a collection of these because i use them a lot both to plug into my mixer and various other things actually to be fair i use them a lot less now that i have made for iphone hearing aids that have really good latency but i like having a few around the place cuz when you need one you really need one so if it breaks you are in soup creek man and i have had some break at inopportune times and they do if you use them enough they get all kind of frayed and they stopped working and there so get a couple of them but you can buy them from apple there are also some third party ones that work but the apple ones are probably the way to go i did buy one from amazon i think they made it so yeah i think it might have been an amazon basics brand thing and the microphone the built-in mic didn't work when you plugged it in which was most unfortunate so the apple one definitely does the job 3.5 to lightning adapter paul jenkins hello paul he says greetings uh, uh, greetings jonathan i love your podcast for its many weeks of enjoyment i have received Is there an email app for the iPhone that will issue a different alert sound for incoming mail for each linked account? I have four accounts 
linked on my phone, two for work and two that are personal. Based on recommendations from your show, I am seriously considering switching from the Gmail client back to the iOS client. I was hoping the Gmail client would let me move messages to their appropriate folders from the notifications screen. I would love a different sound for when a work-related or personal message comes in as a notification. While working, I would skip personal notifications and do the reverse on personal time. That's disciplined of you, Paul. The built-in Apple email client, which I think is very good, does exactly this. I have a few email accounts. I have a Mushroom FM one, my main personal one, one that I use for email lists, which doesn't get used very much these days. And I have my work account. uh, So that's four. I think I might be missing one. Anyway, oh, and my iCloud account, that's right. And they all have different email sounds. So the moment that it goes off, I know exactly what kind of email I am dealing with. I also have a very um, jingly sound for VIP mail. You can designate specific people as VIP contacts. So if some of my direct reports, well, if any of my direct reports email me, for example, or Bonnie emails me, uh, they are all VIPs and it makes a special sound to say, here's an email that you really do want to pay attention to. And that works brilliantly because, you know, if I'm busy you know, reading a book or doing something, I know that here's an email I probably should tend to right away and be responsive. To somewhere in sunny Australia we go, where the sun is shining, I'm sure the fish are biting and the kangaroos are bouncing. And it's Lachlan Thomas who says, hi, Jonathan, perhaps this isn't an appropriate request. Of course it is, Lachlan. But I would love to hear some demonstrations of old technology as part of the Mosin at Large podcast. I used to love listening to your demonstrations on Main Menu. You demonstrated things like the Braille Light Millennium, the Braille Note, and the Packmate, among other things. But I wonder if you or anyone else has considered doing demonstrations of retro technology for the podcast. To be specific, I'm thinking of products such as the early Pulse Data Keynote products pre-Braille Note, or even, if at all possible, products such as the TSI Versa Braille. I realize these devices are very old, like me, (laughs) and you may not have access to them, but I wonder if any other listeners who do have such devices could contribute a demonstration for inclusion in the episodes. If this request isn't possible, I do understand, but I thought I'd run it by you and see what you think. I'm really enjoying the podcast very much and have listened to all the back issues thus far. Now I'm listening to the In the Arena series you produced with Glenn Gordon. Best of luck and keep up the great work. Thank you, Lachlan. It's a great idea. I love this. I I sometimes think that I'm a little bit too prone to reminiscing these days. <laughs> Must be my age catching up with me. But I like talking about the old days, the BBSs, the old technology. You know, we had actually a couple of years ago, maybe maybe a bit longer, on the Mosin Explosion on Mushroom FM, we had a demo that was submitted by Joy Tilton of her Eureka A4. Man, that had unusual speech. <laughs> it was female speech. I think it was the only female speech synthesizer that I recall from that era, which is pretty neat. 
but it was certainly an acquired taste. And she demonstrated, I believe it was the music composer on the Eureka A4. So if anyone has any old technology that they can still get going, maybe we could run that Apple IIe emulator that I saw around a few years ago and play all those games using the Echo. (laughs) That was a great deal of fun. Then please, by all means, send us a demo of your retro tech. Thank you for the idea, Lachlan. And failing that, if you don't happen to have any working old Braillean speaks or keynotes or Versabrails lurking about, mind you, the Versabrail wouldn't be terribly exciting to demonstrate on a podcast because you just hear the thing go clunk. I mean, it was a Braille device. What about old technology newsletters? I wish I'd kept more of them. They can be an amazing source of information and stuff. That's why so many people want the old main menu episodes, you see, just to reminisce and hear how it was. To be in touch with Mosin at Large, Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com with an audio attachment or write something down. Or you can call the listener line in the United States, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. And we'll see you later in the week. Mosin at